So that was great. Hey, I uh, made a mistake this morning. I know, first time ever, but I'm going to own it. And uh, no, uh, Kelsey's prepared some Lent studies for us. She was supposed to share earlier, and uh, I forgot. So she's put too much work into that to just forget about that. So she's going to come up and share um, kind of a week two uh, devotional. So thank you. It's brief, so it's okay. Um, it's just old age probably, Bob. But for those of you that weren't here last week, um, we kicked off Lent, and um, for those of you that aren't familiar with Lent, go back, and I kind of gave a brief, like, four-minute rundown on why we're doing this. Um, but really, it's about understanding why we need the cross when we get to Easter, and understanding that God's too good to leave us where we're at, right? Um, so I want to walk through just a little bit of Jesus' time in the upper room with his disciples over the next few weeks, and give you a little bit to think about that week as we move forward. Um, and this week, I was thinking about, you know, when we're backed into a corner, that's when, like, the real us is revealed, what we say, what we do, um, when we're being squeezed tight. Um, that's who we really are. And this is where we find Jesus in John 13 in the upper room with his disciples. He's preparing his last supper, the last supper, um, and he knows he'll soon be on the cross. So he's, in, he's, he's being backed into the wall at this point when he's in the upper room. Um, and he's alone in this knowledge. Even his disciples don't really fully understand what the next few days are going to unfold. And the real Jesus that pours out in these moments that we're going to be looking at is the same faithful Jesus that came to love and serve and pour himself out to others. Um, and in John 13, 1, it says, And having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end to the end. And what did this love look like? He washed their feet. And I know for me in these Lent days leading up to the cross, I can think about, oh, look at God washing his disciples' feet. And I forget how human he was in those moments that that human man was going to have to endure the beatings and the brutal death on the cross. Um, but he was also fully God in those moments that he's washing his disciples' feet. And so that means that he knew some things that we wouldn't have known. He knew that at that table um, of the men that he was washing, there was um, a man named Judas who had some 30, 30 coins burning a hole in his pocket. And um, he knew that the man who would betray him was one that he was washing his feet. And Peter was at the table, and pretty soon Peter would call down curses on himself and swear he didn't even know the man who was washing his feet. And the other disciples are there, and pretty soon they're going to promise, hey, listen, we're going to die with you, Christ. And then they go on to abandon the man who is now washing their feet. So he washes the feet of a betrayer, a denier, and ten deserters. And Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And the beginning of the book of John tells us that God became flesh and dwelled among us. He didn't sit at a distance and give us advice on our pain and our feelings, but he came and he was betrayed and he felt um, those feelings and he didn't choose an easy life and he had people close to him run away in his greatest time of need and he chose to wash their feet and during Lent it may seem overwhelming to think of a savior who stoops down to wash our feet because it may seem overwhelming to think that our feet need washed to begin with um, and that our sin-stained souls um, are really that dirty but during Lent we see this savior who's rejected and despised and he picks up the towel and he dips it in water and he washes, and he washes us, the betrayers, the deniers, the deserters. While we were still sinners, 
He picks up the towel and he makes us clean. Um, so this is the slide for this week and just snap a picture because it's just gonna be up there briefly, but some things to think about um, and maybe participate in this week if you're walking this Lent journey with us. Awesome. Thank you, Kels. Um, hey, also, we need to just, let's just give a round of applause for Dave Dudick. The man played three instruments <laughs> this morning. At one point, he was one hand playing the keys and playing the bass at the same time. We had a, uh, Ben had some sick kids who so couldn't, couldn't make it this morning to play piano. So anyways, talented folks, we're grateful to have them. Um, I want you guys to go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Hebrews 12, it's uh, page 1102. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Well, you can imagine that as a cross-country coach, this is like the verse of all verses, right? Run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Um, but the Christian life and our journey with God and relationship with him is an endurance race, is it not? I mean, it is day by day, you know, month by month, year by year, on into an eternal relationship. So we have to find then the mindset and the perspective, the habits, the rhythms in order to make this relationship sustainable for a lifetime, right? A group of guys that I got together with in Colorado a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, many of us are in our late 40s to early 50s, early to mid 50s. And honestly, one of the things we celebrate with each other each time we're there is, hey, we're still in the game. <laughs> like we've been following Jesus for 30, 35, 40 years and we're still doing it because um, that's not the story for everyone. And in this series, we've identified that we have two choices, right? And how we live out this faith journey. Um, we either follow the path of pleasing God, right? We've talked about that. That's the performance-driven narrative that is based on how well we feel like we're able to have enough good behavior for God to be pleased with us. And then we've talked about the other narrative, which is the trusting God narrative, where in that we, we um, believe who God says we are. Last week we talked about we're, we're maturing into who we already are, okay? That we are righteous because Jesus became sin for us. And those two competing paths we've talked about, they have intensely different outcomes. As we saw last week, we're tempted, even if we're heading down that trusting God path, we're tempted, like the character in the book is, sometimes to take that shortcut back over to the room of good intentions because we're so used and we're so programmed to perform for approval. 
But the beginning of this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 should give us imperfect people a little bit of hope. Okay, because he says, first of all, he starts off with, since we're surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about chapter 11. Okay, in chapter 11, many of you probably read, it's sometimes called the Hall of Faith. It's kind of a, a catalog of, of several Old Testament folks who really lived out some courageous, unbelievable faith and trust in God over time. And they mentioned uh, in chapter 11, people like Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Rahab, David, they all made some really courageous choices to put their hope and trust in the promises of God. And there are definitely things we can learn about their faith and be inspired about um, in their journeys. But here's what should bring us the most hope. Among those heroes were liars and murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, just to name a few of the most egregious sins in their life. In other words, a bunch of broken people like you and I, who quickly figured out that they couldn't consistently perform to gain God's approval. And these are our guides. Thank God, right? <laughs> From them we learn that what matters most isn't the perfection of our faith, but it's the perfection of the one that we put our faith in. It's not how good we inherently are, but how good our Heavenly Father is. You see, we're used to earning our, our new identity. Okay, and maybe you've been through multiple seasons of this in your life, but most people can probably relate to this sense of like you wanting to be, you know, what do they say, um, new year, new me, right? So we go on a diet and we start working out and we get, you know, some nice new clothes um, or new haircut or whatever. And, and maybe we get a promotion, you know, things are going our way. Things are looking up. We're getting it together based on whose effort? Ours, of course, Right? But if we become a new creation in Christ, it's completely based on his effort, which is freeing on one hand, but on the other hand, also kind of a little bit hard to swallow. Many of us don't want to be in a position to feel like we haven't earned something. This free gift of grace is a little bit more difficult than we imagined. And when you think about it, the good news of Grace is kind of what gets what we use to get people in the front door of Christianity, right? We tell people, man, it's by grace you've been saved. But then pretty much everything we tell folks about what it means to follow Christ quickly becomes this narrative of performance. We set people up with this idea that they have to strive to be holy by doing certain religious things. It's spiritual disciplines, we tell them, right? And we start justing and shooting ourselves and others. Man, if they just, you know, read their Bible every day like I told them to, or pray, or go to church, or whatever we want to fill the blank in there with, or I should be better at this, this, or this. And the blame and shame language in church culture can be pretty strong. And it's the path of pleasing God that we've been talking about. The pleasing God path is centered around cycles of control. And the calling cards for those things are, are sin management and behavior modification. Our mind believes a lie that if we just leverage enough control, we can change our sin patterns. And so we white-knuckle it, right? We grip our sin 
patterns, our, those cycles tightly, and we determine, right? We make up our mind, I'm not going to do that anymore. And when the inevitable failure comes, the shame floods in, the mask comes on, the blame shifting and finger pointing starts, and hope that any lasting change is really going to happen just kind of goes out the window. And after a brief stroll back towards the room of good intentions, which we, we all take from time to time, the main character, if you remember, is, is kind of intercepted by one of his friends from the room of grace and who kind of just gently invites him to come back. And he follows him. And there he has an encounter with the hostess, the lady that kind of greets people as they come into the room of grace. And she has her own story of the many times she's wandered back to pleasing God. And so they have this conversation the main character says, I ask her the question haunting me. You may know I went back to the old room last week. And even now, for moments, I think about going back. Why would I do that? Why would I consider going back to a place that nearly destroyed me? She pauses and breathes deeply for a moment before answering. I wonder if it's because it rewards who we thought we needed to be. I'm going to put that last part, that last quote up there. Talk to me about your experience with that. The reason we go back to the room of good intentions is because it rewards who we thought we needed to be. Anybody have any experience they can share with that, why that's true? Yeah, Randy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Our desire for approval and knowing that if we, if I do this, this, and this, I'm going to get the pat on the back. I'm going to get the, the praise that I feel like I need. Okay. Performance does have its rewards sometimes, right? There is a little bit of a formula to it. If you have, you know, a good boss or good leaders <laughs> who, who reward you for things, right? What else? Any other experiences or encounters with this you see it in your own life? Yeah, Brooke? Yeah, so she says if you're following what you think are the rules that God wants you to do and your life is actually going well, then you think that you're being rewarded for following the rules well. And that could be a real strong temptation, right? When life is going fairly well and you can kind of give yourself some credit because you think, well, I'm doing the right thing, so why wouldn't it be going well? That's good. Yeah, Nick? Mm. Okay, yeah, so even just, just church, like just, if you're doing the right thing, you get rewarded. Um, 
you know, they call kids up front who attend Sunday school every week, right, to get the pin. You know, the loser kids that don't show up every week, I guess, you know, good luck getting into heaven, right? Sure. It's the first thing they're going to ask for. Where's that attendance pin from Sunday school? Um, you know, for me, I think as I look at that question, um, as a kid, I, um, I really felt like in order to be okay, I had to succeed. I had to win, in life, whatever it was. For me, a lot of it was around sports. You know, it could be around your grades or whatever it, it, you want it to be. Like, I really thought like I needed that to be okay. Because <laughs> I didn't, I, and I didn't even want to know what still being loved as a failure looked like. Like, the thought of that was just like, I don't even want to know what that's like. <laughs> so I'm just going to keep my head down and keep trying to succeed all the time, right? At the end of our message last week, as, as Nick shared this morning, we showed a quote that talked about the, the measure of our love, I mean, of our relationship with God not being based on how little we sin, but on how much we allow God to love us. Um, and I know that that was a really challenging thought for many of us. And it's really hard to receive love from God when shame is controlling us. Shame also has a way of deeply impacting the quality of our relationships. So the author tells us this. He says, we create lies about ourselves to make sense of the pain we suffered or the pain we caused. These false stories become permission we grant ourselves to find meaning in something less than healthy relationships. So plainly put, it's really hard to have healthy relationships when we're not really sure who we are. When we're either beating ourselves up over every mistake or perceived flaw that we think we have, or if we're justifying our actions and blaming other people for our problems. Nobody really wants to be around those type of people that much. They're kind of exhausting, right? I know I am when I can be like that. And in those false narratives, our ability to connect in ways that bring health and, and flourishing in communities severely hampered. In fact, most of those relationships end up becoming very shallow or really destructive or toxic, toxic in nature. So this problem of unhealthy relationship patterns caused by our sin cycles really comes back to bite us. Because as, as you read in the book and as you just see and experience in life, one of the major ways through from pleasing God to trusting God is through real relationships. The power of our junk, of our broken and sin cycles and the guilt and shame associated with it can, become, uh, can begin to be broken when I tell someone it's there. See, telling someone about my brokenness is the beginning of the end of the madness. And we all have problems. Every one of us has lies or habits that we've used in life to cope. Okay? We all have problems, but not all of us have healthy community. And the interesting thing is, part of what we're looking for... <laughs> Told them not to torture the children this week, but. <laughs> <sighs> Part of 
part of what we're looking for in many of the unhealthy sin patterns in life, I want you to think about, think about for yourself, what are some of the unhealthy sin patterns I have in life? Most of them are centered around what, what, what I'm really looking for is connection with others. We want to be loved for who we are. And we're scared that people won't love us once they find out what we've done. But the consequences of isolating, <laughs> of going it alone and blaming other people, justifying our unhealthy connections is potentially catastrophic. Right? Because emotional rifts are being created between ourselves and the ones being hurt by our sinful actions. Our hidden life of whatever, internet shopping, pornography addiction, you know, drugs, alcohol, emotional affairs, whatever it might be, marriages, families, friendships, careers, all hang in the balance as whether, until as, as we're kind of wrestling with whether we're going to trust God Trust that God loves us despite it all and is committed to our healing no matter how long or how hard that might be. But once we choose to be honest before God and others and we've come to terms with who God says we are despite our shortcomings, we can begin to operate in healthy ways in community. In The Cure, author John Lynch says that we can do this. He says, we can learn to confess the sin I intend to commit rather than confessing the sin I've carried out with all the consequences that it brings. And when I read that, I thought of my son, Zach. Because as a five-year-old, um, he used to come to us Let's say we'd be at like a, you know, some kind of a preschool show, an event, you know, and so the kids are lining up to go on stage or whatever. He'd like run over to us real quick and he'd be like, I'm thinking about pushing the kid next to me. <laughs> and I'd be like, well, did you push the kid next to you? No. Then just go back over there. Like, it blew my mind because I was the kid that was the exact opposite, right? I'd be like, punch the kid and then be like, should you have punch, punched the kid? Well, he had it coming. I mean, I'd be spinning the narrative way the other way. All right, but Zach had this such innate honesty in him, all right, that he would preempt the action and tell us even when he's just thinking about doing something bad, all right? That's called living in the light. And, and the, the uh, disciple John, he talked about when he wrote this in 1 John 1, 7, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Hmm. So then, obviously, the flip side would have to be true. If instead we walk in darkness, we can't experience the love that, have, that other people have for us and the forgiveness God has already granted us. Lynch says that once we've moved, we've made the choice to move towards honest relationships, we can move to a place where this is possible, <laughs> where we can tell someone 
in the first moment that we recognize our vulnerability, our vulnerability, I can't say that word, our vulnerability. Tell someone in the first moment I recognize my vulnerability. Now here's incredible beauty. We can only be loved when another is allowed to meet our needs. God created us with limitations so that we could be loved by others. Instead of pretending we're doing fine, we give others an opportunity to love us. We experience their love as we learn to tell each other we're vulnerable. And man, there's several nuggets there. I'm just going to talk about a couple of those things. First, tell someone the first moment I recognize my vulnerability. That's a habit here in the last few years that I've started to try to, to do more regularly. <clears throat> and, and during different times of the last few years, I've, I've texted or called a trusted friend. The, the moment that I start thinking in a way that I know is not going to be good. So for me, a lot of times it centers around just arrogance and pride. And so in my mind, if I'm kind of butting heads with somebody, I'm making my list, right, of all the reasons why I'm right and all the reasons why they're wrong and what I'm going to tell them and how they're horrible and blah, blah, blah. And I know when I start doing that, it's not going to end anywhere good. And so I'll just shoot off a text you know, to my guys group or whatever, and just say, hey guys, I'm struggling with these thoughts right now. Could you please pray for me? I know that I need that in that moment. When I have a lustful thought or a shameful thought or an urge to spend to bring me temporary joy, whatever it is for you, and you can fill in the blank. This is so important. I hope you hear this, guys. (laughs) If left in isolation, I will probably give in to the temptation. And feel the inevitable pain of regret that comes from that. But I'm telling you, I don't know the exact number, but I'd put it in the upper 90s%. (laughs) When I invite somebody into that with me and ask them to pray, just to talk it through, whatever, almost every time I don't follow through on the action. (laughs) It's unbelievable what bringing things out into the light with a trusted friend who you know then is going to pray and not, you know, judge you and tell you you're a horrible person, but just be in it with you, does for the way that we react and act. So, telling someone the first moment I recognize my vulnerability is key. Second part of that quote that was so powerful was that God created us with limitations so that we could be loved by others. We need each other. We were created to need community. That is beautiful. And here's the key to all of this. Who remembers when we were talking about the room of grace, we talked about the doorknob going into the room of grace, there was a word written above it. Who remembers the word? Humility. Humility. Healthy relationships demand humility because pride will keep us from being vulnerable. Pride will tell us, I can do it on my own. I can handle it. I can control it. Guys, I, I talk about my men's group a lot. It means a lot to me. I have seven guys that, uh, on one week and another six guys on another, so now I've got two different groups. But the seven-guy group, we've been meeting for like four and a half years, okay? And even though we've loved each other through some really tough choices we've made in our lives, there are still times when people in our group, including me, that, that we... Um, 
Let's see that we, I'm sorry, I'm losing my train of thought here. When we choose to still hide things from one another. Okay? That that we still just kind of choose to just keep this to ourselves. Too proud to admit that we can't can't handle it on our own. And, And the hard thing about that is, guys, it's just so heartbreaking. Because there are real consequences that have come from those actions. When all along, people were right there ready to hear their confession, ready to love them and meet them in the midst of their pain and brokenness and maybe a poor choice they made and walk with them through that and and try to avoid some of the consequences that came. It was all there for us. But our pride kept us from being willing to share something with people who pretty much knew everything about us anyways most of the time. We don't hide it very well when we're messed up anyways. And guys, there's just too much at stake to stay in hiding the way forward to real honest relationships that can be found in the room of grace is only by humility. Let's get back to our, our, our verse in, in uh, Hebrews 12, okay? How do we run with perseverance the race marked out for us? This Christian journey that we're all on, how do we do it? Do we just knuckle down and try to do better the next time? What does verse 2 say? We do what? We fix our eyes on Jesus. We all want to thrive, right? We want the people around us to thrive. And hopefully as a result of we're thriving. So my, my spouse thrives, my kids thrive, my friends thrive. Because I'm thriving in my spiritual life. The path to thriving doesn't look like hiding behind a mask. Or having it all together. That doesn't inspire anyone. Just spoiler alert. Okay? Our perceived perfection intimidates other people. And leads to unhealthy comparisons and a desire to hide because people feel like I can't do this Christian thing like they can do it. So what does fixing our eyes on Jesus entail? Well, I think on a very practical level, um, part of it entails like knowing Jesus' story well enough, like, like the passage that was shared with us this morning about his heart and how he interacted with, with broken people. So that we kind of know how he lived. And we read the Gospels, we see some things. We see that Jesus was very secure in his own identity. That's a key starting point for anyone. He knew who he was. And he knew that his father loved him. And because he was secure in his identity, he was able to be betrayed and disappointed and not hate them. Right? Like, if I was washing the feet of some of those guys, I'd have, like, a razor blade in my pocket I'd slip in, you know, and just, you know, just a little nick off of Judas there, you know, just a little blood, you know, nothing too bad. But, hey, you know, I know what you're up to, right? But Jesus didn't operate like that because he was secure. (laughs) He didn't need Judas to come through for him or Peter to come through for him. He could be gracious and giving because he, he knew that he was worshiping a God of abundance and not scarcity. 
He could be truthful because he knows to be truthful with people means that you really do love them, even if they're upset with you. He could do all those things because identity was secure. <laughs> so there's a way that Jesus lived as he interacted with broken and hurting people that we can learn from, obviously. So we notice how he lived and loved. And then secondly, we, we believe the things that he says about us are true. Okay, that, that, our, that his grace is sufficient for our weakness, that, that our sin is paid for, has no power over us anymore, that we are dead to sin, fully known and loved. So what are you fixing your eyes on? Because all of us are fixing our eyes on something or someone. And maybe another way to look at it is a question that we've asked here before is when you don't have anything to think about, what do you think about? Where does your mind usually tend to go when you just really don't need to be thinking about anything? You're just driving down the road. What consumes you? Whatever that is, the next thing you want to get, that person that really hacked you off, whatever it is, the next vacation you want, or I don't know. That's probably what you're fixing your eyes on. <laughs> I want to end with a passage in Colossians, if you can open up to Colossians chapter 3. It's page 1076. Colossians 3 verse 1. It says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul says, set your hearts and minds on things above. You see, when we live by kingdom principles, finishing well is a given. It's just going to happen. We're not going to have to think about it. It's going to be a natural result of us. Remember, our life is hidden in Christ. Okay? And the image I want you to get there of what he's trying to say, I heard it explained to me once. It's like, it's like if you had an adult and then you had like a three-year-old behind you and, you know, I would be so covered up that you might not even know a kid was behind me if you were just looking straight on me. It is hidden in me. Same thing with Christ, right? God looks at us. Christ is in front of us. He's got us. He's covered us. And we are hidden in him. Okay? So we have to remember these things are true. Last week, we looked at Ephesians 2, that we've already been raised and seated in the heavenly realms in God's eyes. And as he just says here, we will appear with Christ in glory. Guys, that's our, that's our destiny. If, we're if we surrendered our life to Christ, we can rest knowing that those things are true about us. Fix your eyes on that truth. Set your minds and your hearts on those unbelievable, miraculous, and true images of our future. Because when I do that, instead of wallowing in my sin and isolation... My desire to worship and to pray and to love and to connect with others just explodes when I remember what's true about me and this destiny that I've been promised in Christ. And I think thoughts like this, like I thought this week, as I, as I remember, I looked back over Ephesians 2 that I read to you guys last week, and I thought, 
who am I (laughs) that God would lavish these things on me? And it makes me want to please him, not for his approval, but to please him because I'm already approved. (laughs) And on a practical level this week, guys, I'd really love for us all to try telling someone else the first moment we feel vulnerable to temptation. I want you to try practicing that. I want you to try practicing confessing the sin that you're thinking, not the sin that you've acted out on, okay, or done, or carried out. See how it feels to live honestly and to be loved in those moments, okay? Real quickly, before we go, I think this is important. As people that might receive that confession from other people, what do we need to do to make sure that we keep them on the trusting God path and not the pleasing God path, that we don't send them right back over to where we don't want to be heading? What's important about how we respond to folks when they share confession with us? Yes, Jake. Yeah, good. They, they might not need answers back or advice back. They might just need you to hear them. Okay? That's good. What else? What else is going to make them stay in that trusting God path? Yeah, Matt? Yeah, right, yeah, just know, let, reminding people that they're not alone. You're not the only one struggling with this. You know, if you've got a similar story, obviously you can say, yeah, I've, I've struggled with that, or I can point you towards somebody who struggled with that, so we all have different things. Was somebody over here saying something a minute ago? Yeah, acceptance, okay, good, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, yes, but also, right, like, we have to remember that Christ you know, also said, you know, to the woman caught in adultery, right? I don't condemn you either, but go and sin no more, right? So we have to balance grace and truth, right? And sometimes we have to say the hard thing, but it's the way in which we say it, right? Jesus was able to say that hard thing because he had protected this person (laughs) from getting stoned to death, right? She was able to hear that because she knew that he had her best interest in mind, that she had already protected her and covered her from guilt and shame and retribution. Maybe that, you know, biblically, the some of it that the Bible would say was deserved in that moment, right? So it's so important, guys, how we navigate that. And, and honestly, we need to have some wisdom in who we share some things with because there's some people that we've known from experience are gonna push us down that pleasing God path right back to the performance thing that's not healthy, <laughs> Find some new voices, okay? Find a voice who you think is gonna push you towards something that's healthy, that keeps you wanting to come to God, that keeps you resting in who you are and reminding you of 
of God's pleasure with you that's not based on what you do. Okay, because people in the pleasing God crowd, they're going to want to just give you the formula. They're going to want to give you the easy answer because it demands less of them. It demands more for us to really engage with people. That's the power of a community in the room of grace. Okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this time today. Um, man, loved the image of you fully vulnerable, washing the, the disciples' feet, knowing all, and each one of us are those disciples. We're all betrayers. We're all wanderers, um, deniers. But God, you, yet you love us. You meet us in those places. And it's not based on our ability to pull off this Christian life. And that, it's just overwhelming, God. We just don't deserve it. And I pray that we would meditate on that and rest in that. And God, I, I really pray for genuine community. I pray that this place would be filled with people who are safe to come and to, to be vulnerable and, and to, to, to head some things off at the past before they get to the place of regret and just severe consequences, Lord, that we would be the kind of community that can hear confession from one another and handle that with grace and truth in a way that makes us dive in deeper. Lord, we just love you. We thank you so much for your grace and for the way that you set up this whole thing. <laughs> when we really start to put our minds around it, it's just unbelievable. We're the recipients of an unbelievably loving God. Thank you so much for that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us?